Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Amy. We both grew up with dads who drank too much. So, we are both adult children of alcoholics. And we're here to talk about our experiences using honesty and some pretty dark humour. We'll be chatting to a variety of people affected by alcohol addiction. Our dads were both called Steve and they're both dead now, which means we can finally have the conversations we've wanted to. You had to go there already, didn't you? (laughs) We've had a lot of experiences between us and we are both really passionate about helping other people. So sit back, relax and join us with Sarah and Amy, Children of Alcoholics podcast. Hello. And welcome back to another episode of Sarah and Amy, the Children of Alcoholics podcast. Uh, we've been gone for a while. We've, I like to think of it as we've done our first season. We're back for season two, but it weren't planned like that, was it? No, I think that's probably giving it a degree of planning that didn't exist. But a lot has happened. <laughs> a lot has happened. So we thought we'd give a catch up episode before we get back into some kind of routine and normality just to fill you all in on what's been happening in the lives of Sarah and Amy if you're interested you might not be interested but there's some there's been some interesting developments with our involvement with NACOA that we want to share with everyone and we want to have a chat about this time of the year we're heading to Christmas and how that might make us feel as children of alcoholics or adult children of alcoholics and how this time of the year could be quite triggering for some people. I've told Amy because I feel like I'm really off my A game after a bit of a breakdown. That might be Amy's laughing. You can't. Amy, it's because I said a bit of a breakdown. Okay, a massive breakdown, (laughs) a massive mental breakdown after I bit off more than I could chew. So I've told Amy she can lead with today's podcast questions. I mean, you said I could lead, and then you've just spoken for a good few minutes straight. So uh, she's back. She's back. (laughs) <laughs> I've found a bit of a hyper focus today I'm not gonna lie so I don't know I can't even remember the last time we did one of these but yes it's been quite a busy period of time I knocked down my house and rebuilt my house so that was a challenge and we did try and record a couple in between but I was living in various places and it didn't really work did it and you've had your stuff going on so we just <laughs> you laugh at just just had some stuff going on um and I suppose the big news is that Nakoa asked you earlier in the summer to become a ambassador for them to promote them and their work did which is very exciting and hugely complimentary but what did they also ask you they asked me to become a trustee of Nakoa so that was exciting (laughs) well they asked me I had a quick google to work that meant I was technically in charge of you (laughs) so the reason Amy (laughs) took on the role of trustee (laughs) was to be my boss and to rub my face (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really because I've got about three followers and you've got several thousand but um anyway so it's all very positive. It's all very lovely. It's really good. And I'm so, I was so thrilled for you when I found out. And I think it was such a honor, real honor to be asked. And I think, I think it's, I think it's amazing. It's an amazing opportunity. It's great for us to be able to use our platform, platform, can't speak properly, our platforms, use our platforms to be able to spread the word and talk about it more openly and reach a wider audience so 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was completely surprised, but absolutely blown away when they asked me and just really thrilled. But it's like all those things, it feels like it has really validated the last, well, three years, over three years now since my dad died. And I know it's longer for you, but it is bittersweet, isn't it? Because it is that thing of, oh, this has been really rubbish. And for me, Nakoa and being involved in them has been the one thing that has just helped me so much. So to then be asked to kind of be part of that for a really long time was amazing. And then when these amazing things happen, you also go, oh, actually, I probably wouldn't be here if that really bad thing hadn't happened. It's quite complicated, I think. No, I relate to that. I do relate to that. It's, it's bittersweet because all you want to do is pick up the phone and tell them and that's the one person that you want to tell is the one person you can't but it's also they're the reason why we're doing this um, if anybody would have said to me seven or eight years ago that oh you're going to be an ambassador for Nakoa I would first of all I didn't know who Nakoa were but <laughs> if I would have found out I would have been well I would have been devastated I know it sounds really horrible, but if somebody would have said that to me seven or eight years ago, I would have thought, what do you mean? Like, I didn't even realise my dad was an alcoholic back then. So, yeah, you know what? It's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'd have been the same. Like, well, I don't need that because I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh... But I think you are, I think, and you, you know, stuff you've said to me, I think probably when we were in it, we both would have said we were doing okay and we were fine and probably would have been quite closed about what was happening. You know, I mean, I wouldn't be having the conversations I have now were my dad still alive at all. And when we were absolutely in the thick of it, I didn't ever seek help particularly or even really want to talk about it, which I do regret now because I think the reason I didn't want to talk about it was because I didn't feel like anybody else got it. Yeah, I think that. And I think also there's that feeling of disloyalty. You don't want yeah. to about it because you think that you're talking about them and you can't talk to them about it because 90% of the time they're in denial which made you question your own sanity and whether you'd got you'd gotten it right but I, I always remember I used to think no he's an alcoholic no he's not actually yes he is no he isn't maybe I'm being a maybe I'm being a drama queen maybe I've gotten it right totally and totally constantly up down up down and you don't actually believe it when you're in it you don't believe it and you become so accustomed to a way of living and a way of acting that it becomes your normal so you can't it's very difficult to validate when you're in that situation I think yeah, because also my dad never particularly identified as having an alcohol I mean he would have said he was alcohol dependent I think if really pushed but he wouldn't have used the terms kind of addiction or alcoholic he had really negative connotations towards those so that did make you question and I used to sort of look at everybody else and what they were drinking and I'd sort of say well he's not really drunk more than them but he was always behaving differently to them and I think it was only really the last few years where I would say to somebody else yes my dad has an addiction to alcohol and that was really when I started to notice kind of much worse living conditions much worse kind of you know personal care and then he would come for Christmas and I'd hear him get up in the night to drink and that was a real turning point because he'd gone from he probably drinks too much and he's not doing himself any favors to he's actually killing himself by doing this and 
that could happen at any point. I think there was probably a 10-year window where at any point, if he had just drunk a bit more one day or something like that, he could have died. I felt like we were just on borrowed time. I never believed it would happen with my dad. Oh, I always knew. I never believed it. I used, And again, I think I used to have this huge conflict with myself all the time. He is, he isn't, he is, he isn't. And I suppose that's because he would yo-yo so frequently. And I'd always believe, even though he must have said it thousands of times, and I mean, I literally mean thousands of times, I'll stop drinking on Monday. I'll stop on Monday. I could stop if I wanted to. I'm not an alcoholic. Everybody has something to unwind. And you justify it all the time. So I never, I never believed it. And I suppose when you're in that moment as well, that's your parent and I think you don't you think they're invincible I never believed that it would kill him I used to I think you had more open conversations with your dad about it though mine was quite shuttered quite judgmental of that term and didn't really identify and actually I also didn't encourage those conversations because they were really difficult and I just didn't want to hear I think it's almost that thing where I'd felt let down so many times that if I didn't ask I couldn't be let down again. I was always fighting him. I was always, I was a little bit like, yeah, we're going to have this conversation. Bring it on. Let's talk about it. He'd deny it. And in his mind, he was fine and he didn't need the alcohol. And if he wanted to stop, he could. Um, but it was just a conflict. And I always say to everybody, there's so many emotions involved. And half the time you don't, I think when you're living in that moment, you don't understand what's happening. And again, you become accustomed and you're all over the place. God, I've had so many conversations with people where they must think, oh, you're really contradicting yourself. And it's not that I'm contradicting myself. It's that there were so many contradictions that I lived through from my perspective, from his perspective, there were so many conflicts that it was really difficult to understand how I was feeling at that time. Because I could say like Christmas, for instance, some Christmases we had were great and then some were horrendous. I hated Christmas sometimes. Ironically, the last Christmas I had with my dad, he was sober and we had the best time. It's like I feel like I was gifted a last Christmas with my dad. Uh, we played Cards Against Humanity. and oh, Always a winner. It, this will make you laugh. He pulled the card, I drink to forget. He pulled that card, I drink to forget. And then one of us had to put in something really funny. And uh, like the the other question, my mum was there as well. And my mum and dad separated. And I had the ex-wife card. <laughs> <laughs> and we all cracked up at that. And yeah, he didn't drink. He was sober. And then he relapsed months later. But there was Christmases before that where it would just be him on the sofa, curtains drawn, drunk, dark room, watch us open our presents and then leave dad alone. He's sleeping. And usually what that meant looking back was dad's drinking and he wants to get drunk without being disturbed. And Christmas is, I think, statistically the worst time of year. Well, it's I mean, we're so we're sort of it's, we're coming into it now, aren't we? It's kind of end of November. Um, and it's Black Friday today. So we this is really where it all starts to kick off. So Christmas dues, everybody, it just becomes really normal. Society now normalizes basically for the next six weeks, daytime drinking, going out during the week, uh, you know, kind of gifting alcohol, 
all of those things. And actually, the wheels can come off really quickly. I don't particularly remember, certainly latter years, any Christmas particularly fondly. Because I was damned if I did and damned if I didn't. If I saw him, it would be awful. But if I left him on his own, then I'd just feel absolutely dreadful all day. But, you know, I'm not going to go into every Christmas, but one year he was waving a gun around. One year he kind of fell over cracked his head open on a dog walk sort of in the early evening one year we went there on boxing day we were going to take the kids to the theater he'd booked the tickets he was basically unconscious slept through the whole pantomime you know and then the last christmas just getting up just a holdall full of flip top water bottles full of vodka just to kind of go and secretly drink to get him through it but we all knew, but nobody talked about it. And like, he couldn't really eat by then. So you'd sort of make all this food and he'd make these awful like gagging noises. And he never, ever saw my kids open a Christmas present ever. He never, ever got up in time for that to happen. They'd then annoy him because, you know, they were kids and excited. I think we left him one year. I was telling the kids this the other day. We left him one year in our house with the kids and we went across the road for an hour and a half to a drinks thing on the Christmas Eve, came home, he was reading the paper in the living room and the kids were playing in the front garden in the pitch black on Christmas Eve. No idea. God. We don't have any of those. Yeah. I just remember it being a very complicated, and actually I would get really tense like months in advance, like do I invite him or do I leave him? When am I going to see him? What's the shortest possible time I can spend with him? because this is going to be really stressful and actually I don't enjoy this, but I feel I did want to see him, but I knew it would come with lots of feelings attached to it. That must be hard as well for you to think. I mean, I just remember with my sisters, who's having dad this Christmas? Yeah. 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 Because the thought, you can't leave them on their own. Otherwise the thought of them being at home on their own and you would know they'd be getting drunk and getting up to god knows what and you'd be sitting feeling guilty all day thinking what are they doing are they okay it's christmas are they lonely and you'd feel guilty about that so that must have been horrendous yes but i think it comes back to that thing of making choices to look after yourself yeah and actually it was really okay oh definitely for some years for me to say i'm not doing this you know but there's still a guilt that consumes oh there's a huge guilt but then if if he wasn't with us and I felt guilty or he was with us and I felt really let down or really hurt or really angry. So actually both scenarios had lots of emotions attached to them. And some years I felt I could deal with it and some years I didn't yeah. feel I could do with it. But it, yeah, I think for anybody kind of living in that situation, Christmas is just the worst and everybody else and Pete you know talking about it already what are you doing for Christmas where are you for Christmas what are your Christmas plans and actually who wants to be the one who turns around and goes well actually it's going to be really stressful and you know my parent is an alcoholic and they're not going to get up to see my kids or they're going to forget that it's all of those things It's a really, really overwhelming time of year. And of course, we're just bombarded with images and social media and adverts and all of those things of people who aren't living 
the way that you are it kind of rubs your face in it a little bit doesn't it not that that's that's a bad thing as such people should be enjoying their holidays I remember and it weren't Christmas it was a few months before Christmas we went on a we were booked to go on a family holiday and my dad had taken annual leave and used it as an opportunity to get absolutely off his face and I picked him up and he was really drunk really really drunk and I made the decision then because my sister had just found out she was pregnant and she was with us as well and I made the decision to take him home and I remember feeling so guilty but I knew I had to do that to protect myself to protect my kids to protect my family to protect my sister I knew I had to do that otherwise we wouldn't have enjoyed the holiday but still all holiday I was so wrecked with guilt or racked with guilt even feeling really like oh is he all right what's he doing should I have done that did I overreact so it's all consuming so it's so important that you take that and I'll say to everybody you have to think about yourself in these situations and you have to protect yourself but at the same time it's all well and good saying that but when you're in that moment it doesn't feel like that it feels it just feels horrible <laughs> like I know but it also feels horrible like basically treating a parent like that game of hot potato like literally like throwing it from one person to another yeah and I and that's horrible as well you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't I feel like in in my situation very much for me and, and I know it's different for everyone it's so unique I've always felt like I was damned if I did and damned if I didn't either way I couldn't win yeah I would agree with that there was no right or wrong way and whatever I did rightly wrongly left me with some kind of feeling of guilt anger regret just all kinds of emotions and this is why it's such a complicated thing to talk about to articulate because it's so complicated even the kind of you know, making choices to protect yourself, which I massively advocate. It's kind of one of the pillars of NACOA. They talk about the six C's and that's one of them. But actually sometimes those choices, they're both, you know, all the choices are hard. That's the thing. There are situations where there is no good choice. There are choices that might be better for you at that time when you make them. It doesn't mean you're winning. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. It's very hard. It's very hard to navigate. It's very hard to live through. And you can only really properly articulate yourself when you look back on it, I, I feel. Like looking back now, I think, oh, yeah, okay. That's why it was so difficult. Or that's why I felt like that. It's, yeah, it's tough. But even the kind of drinking at Christmas, if you have a parent coming to you or you're seeing a parent at Christmas who drinks too much, a lot of the time my gut feel was I'm going to restrict the alcohol in my home yeah and actually towards the end absolutely didn't do that because it felt so futile but then I felt like I was enabling it or encouraging it and I knew that by providing it it was going to end in a behavior I didn't like or I would witness something I didn't want to witness but I had enabled that situation but the alternative was he was still a dry I don't so complicated god I remember when my dad did a sober Christmas at our house literally the last one the one that I was telling you about at the beginning of this 
And I actually had a flashback to it the other day where I felt so guilty because it was something that come back to my memory. And I remember drinking around him and he was sober. And I looked back at that now and it makes me feel really bad. But God, I drank in front of him knowing that he was sober. And I know it's hard, isn't it? Because I, what do you do in that situation? That made me feel really guilty when I thought about that the other day. Yeah, that's, I remember being at a wedding and my dad had been in hospital and he'd been detoxed for, for an illness and had gone through the detox process. And at this particular wedding he wasn't drinking and I was and I remember like saying to him I'm really proud of you but I mean I I don't drink anymore and I know that feeling at a party when someone comes over and they've had too much to drink and the smell and like that sweet sickly smell they're always standing too close to you and they're right in your ear and he would have been surrounded and actually what's again what's the right thing whether it's a wedding or a Christmas event there is no right thing. At the time, I'd have said, well, he needs to learn how to exist in a world where other people do it, even if he can't. But I think probably at the root of it was that I didn't trust that period of sobriety. I, d- I didn't trust that it would last. So sort of, you know, thought, sod it. Hard, isn't it? So hard, because even when you're living through that, how do you navigate your way through something that you one can't articulate two you don't understand and three you don't even realize it's actually really happening well you don't do you because there's no guidebook no there is and often you can't have the conversation around what with the person who's unwell with the addiction it's not a conversation you can have you know i think if somebody was coming to you for christmas and they were poorly with you know with a disease or an illness or they were having treatment for something you would actually be able to say tell me what you want this to look like what can we do to make this nice for you or but you can't do that because it it changes minute by minute sometimes doesn't it yeah I would agree with that but I do believe that we should be having more open conversations like this so we can eventually learn how to behave in those situations or being those situations what I mean by that is if we speak about it so openly and remove that stigma then and talk about it like an illness addiction is a mental illness and treat the root cause of it it might actually empower that person that's addicted to seek the help and the treatment that they need am I making sense yeah yeah I'm just looking at your face like (laughs) (laughs) no I don't even know if I'm... No, no, that does make sense. I'm thinking about it. And I know I had spoken to you about this in that I have volunteered to help a local night shelter this winter. And I kind of went to the training. And just to be very, very clear, I am not doing the work they do down at all. But it was hard for me to understand sort of some of the decisions and I know they've been made absolutely for the right reasons and in conjunction with lots of things that I wasn't party to but essentially this night shelter won't let people in if they're under the influence of alcohol so when you were saying about kind of treating it as as a mental health issue and all of those things they would allow somebody with mental health issues to come in provided they were sober but there was this 
whole point of sort of seeing addiction as an addiction, not an illness, and essentially sort of further ostracizing a community of people based on the fact they were addicted to alcohol. And I do understand why. And, you know, I understand in a in sort of lay terms for people who are organizing it, what that they think that might look like. But I really struggled with that. And I absolutely respect the decision. And I'm, you know, going to do it and obviously stick to those rules. But I found that really, really difficult to listen to. Yeah, I agree with you because alcohol dependency it's so dangerous to tell an alcoholic or give an alcoholic incentive to get sober if they're dependent on it because alcohol dependency is deadly yeah so they have said like if somebody is absolutely dependent and needs kind of those top-ups that is something they can provide but it was just this very standalone thing where having an illness of addiction was not going to be treated in an equal way to any other illness. And I really struggled with that because who, if I was requiring the help of night shelter, that would be because I was in a really bad place and who, you know, kind of my thought is, well, I wouldn't judge somebody for becoming addicted to drugs or alcohol. If life was that difficult, you know, and I always think, well, it happened to my dad it happened to my family and I'm going to laugh when I say we're completely normal but you know like kind of what is normal but we don't tick any of those boxes and it happened to us and the thought of people kind of casting those judgments I've, yeah, I found it really really difficult but it's treated so differently because it's still seen as a choice that's hard that is that is really hard there's a very prevalent stigma that still exists and it's that stigma and I think that kind of stereotype on an alcoholic that prevents people from actually accessing the right support um I mean I suppose the undercurrent there is that if somebody is drunk or under the influence they're going to be difficult they could be argumentative I'm guessing I I didn't ask but the subtext was that they would prove problematic but is that necessarily true compared to other illnesses? I don't know. There's plenty of other illnesses that can cause people to behave like that as well, isn't there, really? I mean, without it's hard to delve into it. I'm not a clinician or an expert in that area, but I don't think alcohol dependence... <laughs> that doesn't normally stop us. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> even isn't the only... It's not the only illness that can affect people's personalities or how they come across no and I, you know as I say I respect the decision and obviously been made for all the right reasons and you have to have rules around these things but I find it they don't mean challenging do they mean if they're acting drunk or do they mean if they've had well and that's the thing isn't it actually you know I could tell within seconds of seeing or speaking to my dad whether he'd been drinking or not it's quite hard to tell sometimes with other people yeah it is well depends doesn't it um yes really tough did you challenge them no because I don't feel that that's I not in that kind of setting you know that would be a conversation for another time which I might well instigate but I am very aware of the fact this is a charity I feel like I've fallen down a right rabbit hole now but this is a charity that 
doing a really, really good thing. And I do not want to take any of that away from it. I think it's a conversation that maybe I will try and have at a later date just to understand it, I guess, for my own sort of personal um, understanding. But I don't know where those people go. Yeah. You know, Christmas, winter, it's really rubbish. And actually, is it okay to turn someone away who might be perfectly well behaved just because they have an addiction to something? And, you know, the reason they have an addiction to something and the reason they're probably accessing that support in the first place is because life isn't great for them. So then if you say no, are you making it worse? You're making people feel less. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I massively agree. Such And this is, this is why whenever I talk about alcohol addiction and alcoholics and being that child or being the loved one, it's always so difficult to express and to talk about because there are so many different perspectives and so many different angles everybody's situation and everybody's circumstance is different which is why it's so difficult to kind of create any kind of plans or create any kind of pathway for it because it's different for everyone and I think that's a big challenge I think it's a huge challenge how do you tackle that how do you tackle something that's so nuanced and so complex and complicated well you don't do you that's all you do is have conversations and offer your perspective and acknowledge the fact that everybody's going to respond differently or react differently or have a different experience and just hope that something that either you listen to or read or affiliate yourself with helps you you know for example I tried an Al-Anon meeting years and years ago and it didn't work for me. And that probably was more about me at the time than it was about them. And again, I believe they're a really good organization and they help a lot of people. So again, I'm not doing it down, but that didn't work for me. But then I came across Nakoa and the personal experience pages. And that was the first time where I felt, and again, not every personal experience resonated with me. I liked to think of it as a bit of a top trumps at the time. Like, oh, that's a good story because it's a bit worse than mine. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I don't, and I do actually really mean that in that when it was really rubbish, I almost needed to know that somebody had it worse because for a long time I'd been like the worst story for people. Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> It sounds really bad. And um, I didn't come up with cards or categories for this Top Trumps game in my head. But for me, when I found Nakoa, my dad had just died and it was horrific. And I kind of thought that was about as bad as you could get. So some stories you'd read and you'd go, okay, yeah, that sounds really similar. Or oh, actually, that, that makes me realise we're not the only person. And then you'd read one and go oh, actually, that doesn't sound quite as bad. And this is really not good terminology that I'm using because every experience is unique and everybody has their own thing on it. But, you know, my take on was, oh, actually, that that sounds all right compared to what I've just been through. I'll take that. And then some of them were worse. But I think you need that. I think you need all those stories. You know, people will listen. Hopefully someone will listen to this. But people will listen to this and say, well, 
they didn't have it so bad. Some people will listen to it and think that is absolutely awful. You know, it's all to do with your frame of reference, isn't it? And I know we've spoken about this before, but you do have to listen to other people. (laughs) I'm laughing at you because you can see this big shovel. (laughs) (laughs) There's no shovel in the room because I believe it to be true. And that was what I did. <laughs> what did you think of me then when you met me? Did you think, oh, God, she's had it way worse or hers isn't as bad as mine? Well, no, really identified with yours because our dads <laughs> were both called Steve. They were a similar age. And I remember the first thing I saw of yours was your TED Talk. And it was kind of about the alcohol industry and essentially sort of, you know, their role in people becoming addicted to alcohol and I could see the point but that's not where I was at at the time I was still really angry and absolutely felt like my dad had done this to himself and that actually he could have not bought the alcohol but I really did understand what you were saying and I believe that now more you know kind of your point now more about the industry and about kind of society and all of those things uh, but I did think I did think our stories were similar and our thoughts were similar and yeah, sort of the age of you know the fact that they didn't really like they ended up in real messes and actually they were they were good they were good they were good people and people and they did similar things. I remember we've bonded over so many things, haven't we, about the odd things that both of our dads used to do. They probably would have gotten on great, I reckon. I sometimes wonder that I think that they had quirky ways about them and we've had so many conversations where we're like oh my dad did that too and like you relate to this relate to that where they'd scribble on bits of paper and write stupid notes and their handwriting was all messy or elaborate plans and really big ideas that they'd have that they were going to set up my my dad had all these elaborate business ideas and he was going to at one point um grow mushrooms at the bottom of the garden and sell them to sell them to fancy restaurants in London (laughs) I was like dad how is that even gonna like what space do you have to grow the amount of mushrooms at the end I just nodded and smiled and went yeah that's what I yeah I always say it was like having a third toddler but in that you would just exactly what you've just said you go yeah all right then you'd have to yeah go on there were so many others that I could share. Because was- you knew it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But yeah. actually, it was easier to pretend it would happen than have a whole argument. God, I remember once my dad was going to fly us. God. I know this. He was going to get his pilot's license and he was going to fly us to America. Or we were going to fly to America. I mean, also, at this point, I just need to caveat this. He wouldn't actually have been allowed into America because he had a criminal record. So... I mean, it fell at the very first hurdle. <laughs> and he was going to drop us at Disneyland and then he was going to go and get his private pilot's license and then he was going to fly us somewhere. And then I said, I'm not getting in an aeroplane with you and I'm certainly not putting my children in an aeroplane with you. And he just got really angry about it. <laughs> and then essentially bombarded me for days with information about safety records of light aircraft and sent through kind of seating plans of of Cessna aeroplanes and I mean utterly bonkers it's very sweet that he believed it in his own way 
but there was no point sort of pointing out the obvious that he wasn't even going to get through customs. There was just no point. It was almost like, would you think, do you think, would you say they almost became delusional in their thinking towards the end? Because I think my dad did. I think there was certain like grand ideas and grand plans that he had, which I know we laugh at and we shouldn't do really because they're probably very ill in the way they were thinking. But if you can't laugh, then you just cry about it, don't you? But I think, I think I look back at that and think, Maybe my dad was a little bit delusional. Maybe the drink made him that way. I don't I don't think it I mean, maybe there was an element of that. I just think it was that element of hope of things will get better. I I do believe that he never thought this would be how it would end up. I genuinely believe he thought it would turn a corner. Yeah. And actually this wasn't this wasn't the end of the story which, you know, unfortunately it was. And I also need to be very clear that he wasn't making any attempts to overcome his addiction when he died. So, but I I think he just didn't identify as being an alcoholic and he didn't want to acknowledge what that meant. I think the thing is with alcohol addiction is people underestimate how deadly it is. People underestimate the severity of it. Liver disease is growing at a rapid rate more than ever. If you go onto the British Liver Trust Foundation, their website, and have a look at the deaths, deaths from liver alcohol-related liver disease are four times higher than they've ever been. All other diseases, cancer, heart disease, are on the decline, and liver disease is massively on a steep incline. I'm currently sitting on a research panel for... Um, the um, for scientists who are researching alcohol related liver disease and how the stigma affects people accessing support and the reason I'm saying this is because liver disease and liver failure which is essentially what gets you if you're going to die from alcohol if you've not died from an alcohol related accident then it's essentially going to be liver disease and multiple organ failure um, the symptoms are silent so you, you don't actually get or many people don't actually get severe symptoms of liver disease or liver failure until the very end, which is what happened with my dad. So I think you're going through it, you're going through alcohol addiction, alcoholism, and you don't actually have any warning signs physically to say that this is bad. You're really- yeah, that's what we were told, that basically it works. Your liver works, 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 and then it's almost like a switch. Yeah, And you can wake up the next morning and in the snap of your fingers, I've I've spoken to alcoholics or recovering alcoholics who have said, I went to bed one night, absolutely fine. The next morning, I woke up yellow with a hard, bloated stomach and needed a liver transplant. And that is how quick it can happen. And I think in our dad's cases, certainly for my dad, is I think those warning signs, there were little subtle signs towards the end, looking back on it. But the years before that, building up to it, in his mind, he thought he always had Monday. He always yeah. thought there would always be a Monday where he could stop. And he would always say to me, I can control this. If I want to stop, I can. And he was in denial that he couldn't. And I think he genuinely believed he could. Do you think the fact that he did give up for that period of time, do you think that increased his confidence and that kind of bravado that I can do this if I if I choose to or if I want to? Oh, absolutely. I remember, and bearing in mind, let's be really truthful about that. My dad did get sober for 16 months before he died. 
16 months that I know of. But he was forced into that. We kind of backed him into a corner with no contact for three months and left him with no choice but to get sober. Otherwise, he was on his own. Um, so he didn't get sober for the right reasons in the first place. He did it for us, which was admirable. And obviously, I look, look at that now and realise how hard that would have been for him and how much uh, that would have taken out of him. But he didn't do it for himself. Um, so that was the first red flag. And secondly, when he was sober, I remember having numerous conversations with him where he said, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. And I, I admit that I used to think that as well. I used to think, yeah, you're not an alcoholic anymore, Dad. You're you're cured. Um, you're always an alcoholic, and going back to it should not be an option. It can't be an option. But my dad would tell me that I'm going to test it. I'm going to see if I can have just one drink. Um, and I remember going, oh, Dad, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think you should do that. And he started going on about how he doesn't miss it. How you know, I'm having nightmares about drinking. I just want to see if I can have one and put it down just to test myself. I just want to prove to myself that this is what I can do. But I think that might have been the start of his relapse. I think I haven't kind of been in that place, but I think the acknowledgement that you're done must be so difficult when it's been such a huge part of your life. And everybody, I guess everybody else can do it. Like, yeah. As in everybody else can moderate or have a normal, in inverted commas, relationship with it. And actually, that acceptance, if you're done, you know, my dad would routinely sort of moderate, cut down. He was detoxed quite a few times in hospital. And then exactly as you've said, it would just ramp up because ultimately he was addicted to it. And that's really hard. Very difficult to control, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, my dad was never done, I don't think. I think he thought he was, but I don't think he was ever done with it. There were so many, looking back on it, there were so many things that he should have done differently in that patch of sobriety. Um, all the signs, again, looking back, were there. Just if you don't know what you're looking for, how do you observe it? How do you see it? But yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know what I'm saying now. It's just, it's quite reminiscing that and looking back on that's actually quite, that's actually quite a hard thing to talk about. Mm. After, I mean, I talk about it a lot, but that, that point, I think that's hard because he got sober and then he relapsed. I got my normal dad back, the dad that I remembered as a child and had that brief patch of feeling that like overwhelming love and respect for my parents. Yeah, and then lost it again. Yeah, so I I saw or see him, my dad, as two different people. Oh, I do the same. So absolutely had kind of the one growing up who was great. But then by the time I was a teenager, he was sort of starting to disappear. And then you'd get these flashes, but probably for the last, going to say the last 15, 20 years, he was a completely different person to the one I remembered. And then he sort of changed again, probably the last, I don't know, probably about the last 10 years. He was someone, I mean, he was so in, you know, so deep in it then that there was really very little left of what he'd used to be. And I can't even really remember that. I get those flashes of, but, you know, he sort of, he lost his sense of humour or the things that had made him fun or any of those things. 
I swear I got a glimpse of that back again for that 16 months. I had a brief patch of, oh, it's normal dad. And then lost it again. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's tough. Yeah, it was because I remember really bonding with him in those 16 months. And I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of love for my dad because he was making up for the time he lost. I know that looking back, keep saying looking back. I remember um, coming back from London. I was working in London for the day and I was on the train and I'd parked my car in this dark car park, like really like out of the way from the train station. And he rang me when I was on the train and he was making the most I could hear it in and he was making the most out of the fact that he could do this now he he weren't mm. so he could get in the car and he could come and pick me up and I said he said oh how are you doing where are you um and I said oh I'm on the train it's really pouring down with rain and I've got to walk back to the car I'm gonna get soaked I'm in heels I've got to walk it's dark and it was only like a five minute walk so it went like horrendous and he he came and picked me up to drop me to my car so I didn't have to go out in the rain and I remember thinking, oh, I love him so much. I'm so happy that I've got my dad back and I'm building this relationship with him. And on my drive home that night, I remember thinking, oh, God, I don't know what I'd do if anything ever happened to him. At the time, I'm 27. I'm 27 and he's come to pick me up <laughs> in the pouring rain to drop me to my car, which was five minutes across the road. So I didn't get wet and didn't have to walk on my own in the dark so it was little things like that that he would do that was so caring and considerate and just lovely and then the drunk side of him was just completely like just completely different so I had to detach the two which is what makes it so contradicting sometimes and it makes it so conflicting because there's two different people in one body and it, it messes with your head does mess with your head yeah totally and that fact of you can't actually help that's the thing I have never oh yeah helplessness you know you can't control the fact they're doing it and you can't cure it and that really can only come from them that's really hard to understand and it's really really hard to accept and it's a conversation but like even that story you've just said about him picking you up from the station it's really lovely but actually, also, sorry, Steve, too, it's quite annoying for me to listen to you saying that and being really grateful for the fact that he did that, because actually that is what a parent should be doing. Yeah, that's true. It's annoying that you and I tell these stories of like, oh, and then this really lovely thing happened. And it's just quite basic, like it's quite a basic thing. It's what you would do as a parent, isn't it? But you know, I didn't even think about it like that. But you're right. It's because he was, I think I'm reminiscing and feeling grateful for the times that he was present. Because for the majority of my life that I knew him, he wasn't present as a father. He was consumed by what he was going through and his drinking. So to have those moments gave me a glimmer of what a normal dad would look like. Um, yeah. And it gave me that opportunity to bond with him. So it's almost in a way, I've I've said this before, and again, I don't want to invalidate anybody else's feelings, but part of me wonders whether it would have been a lot easier for me to get over everything had he just been an arsehole. Do you know what I mean? I know that sounds really... Yeah. But because there was these, it was 50-50. But then 
that's because you don't feel that as in somebody else could have shared your dad and absolutely thought he was an asshole for the choice choices in inverted commas that he was making or his behavior or his addiction actually that's kind of says more about you than about him in that you didn't feel like that is it easier I don't know would you not just feel rubbish that you hadn't been nicer I mean I definitely feel that about sort of some things I mean it's hard Uh, to invalidate other people's feelings and what they go through but I think I look at it with so many different angles and perspectives and think well would it have been easier if it was like this or this make it harder and I think the only way that I can or the only way that I've managed to grieve properly is by detaching detaching the two personalities and accepting that one of them drunk dad he was ill and learning about that and accepting that has made has made it easier for me to process that some people I know have no empathy and they're angry with their loved one that's totally okay too that's fine but for me I had to get to that space of understanding understanding his why why did he do it why did he do that why couldn't he just stop what was going on what was happening and I had to come to that like detach the two because I did have those good and bad experiences and detach good or drunk and sober dad so I could grieve properly I was mm. totally I totally accept now I totally accept what has happened and how he died and I'm at peace with it I'm at peace with this happened I accept it I know it weren't my fault I know I couldn't have done anything else I know I was living in an impossible situation where there was no handbook or no rules on what to do there was no proper support there I was kind of winging it figuring it out as I went along so I'm totally at peace with the fact that I couldn't have done anything else I was equally affected we were all equally affected and it was an impossible situation and which is why I can do the work I do now it's why I can talk about it so openly and pick apart things and articulate it the way I do now um but yeah going back to what you said earlier on about how um you know not being able to control it and knowing that you can't cure it I was going to say that when other people come up to me that other loved ones will go how can I help what can I do to what can I do for them how can I help them and I find that such a difficult question I know the answer I don't want to say it so when you said it's almost like there isn't a lot you can do if they don't want to accept help and you can't control this and that's what's that's a really difficult and it's a really simple answer, but it's a really yeah, but it's a really rubbish one, isn't it? Because you want to help, you and I remember that desperation. It feels like you're watching somebody you love drown, and but you can't get in. You can't throw a life support in, or you can't get in and pull them out. All you can do is watch until they decide to start kicking their legs, and it's really, yeah. really painful, and it's really, really hard. And you know, I've spoken to so many people where I've known the outcome, I've known what's going to happen, and it's happened how do you how do you what do you say in that situation and it's it's, yeah it's it's a hard it's a very complicated (laughs) very complex and just difficult situation to navigate yes and I think an acknowledgement of it's okay for you to behave in a way that suits you and that can change kind of hour to hour or day to day or month to month, you know, in you can 
go and see someone or they can walk in the door and be kind of under the influence and you could be nice to them and offer them a cup of tea and you could have a chat you could absolutely lose your temper you could cry you could threaten to live all of those variables are the things that you could control as in your response but you don't have to respond the same way every day because we're all it's okay for us to already struggle with something on a day or react differently if that is what's taking care of you yeah I would agree with that so wrapping up and giving advice for people at Christmas in dealing with a loved one well wrapping up I see what you did there (laughs) I do the jokes around here (laughs) oh I didn't even realize I did that just comes naturally just a natural talent I'm so good at these innuendos so wrapping up and getting ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of advice would you give to somebody in that situation as the loved one, knowing that you have an alcoholic loved one coming for Christmas or debating whether you want to be around an alcoholic loved one around Christmas? It's hard. It's hard. I mean, God, there was times where I didn't want to be around my dad at Christmas, especially with my kids. I didn't want to put my kids through that. I didn't want it to ruin Christmas Day. Um, What would I say? I would say, first and foremost, to kind of look after yourself, to not do things that you don't want to do just because you think it's expected of you. Acknowledge the fact that probably in that situation, there are no good choices. There are choices, but, you know, as we talked about, they're both going to, all of them are going to come with their own baggage which may or may not feel great. Ignore other people's Christmases and what they're doing as best you can. And I guess kind of work out what works for you. If you know, if you still live with that parent, for example, you're the expert on how your household runs. You know, we can sit here and kind of give all this advice, but ultimately we don't know what that looks like. If you know, you know, if you're a young adult or a teenager, if you know that your parent is unlikely to be up before midday during the Christmas holidays, arrange to meet a friend in the morning, right? Leave the house and accept that there's lots of things that you're not going to be able to control. If you're a grown up like me, you know, what's going to work for you? Well, physically, very, very mature. Emotionally, less so. <laughs> <laughs> But find that friend, go for a dog walk, go for, just have someone you can send a WhatsApp, like message us on Instagram and just go, this is really rubbish. Yeah, you can text me, it's fine. If you don't have a dog. Uh, (laughs) All right, get my point. (laughs) I'm joking. As in, we're all experts in things that make us feel good. That could be going for a run, going to a yoga class, going for a walk. shutting yourself in a room with a selection box and the Guinness Book of World Record like you do you kind of work out what those things are and maybe try and do that and I'm I mean I'm dreadful at doing that like for me I've actually I'm going to go to work a couple of days in between Christmas and New Year because I know I get really overwhelmed kind of having to do the whole Christmas thing at home and I like to go out for six hours and then come back and that really works for me so I guess just think about it in advance acknowledge the fact that it's not going to be a John Lewis advert 
potentially acknowledge the fact that it might be quite rubbish and there's going to be an element of essentially sort of keeping your head above the water yeah work out what's best you know like we said sometimes it's like treating them like a toddler just to keep the peace other times you might you might choose to have an almighty row Christmas day you like but yeah please try and maintain some control for of what's best for you and that's really important I think it's my thing is to validate that you are equally affected in this and you're navigating your way through a situation that there isn't any standard advice for because it's so unique and different to all of us so I think it's so important do what is right for you and that literally like you say could be anything I think it's also important to seek out your own support so if you need to talk to a therapist a counsellor or a peer support group or reach out to an organisation then and speak to people that get it and understand it like we've both said that surrounding ourselves with a community of like-minded people has really helped us to validate what we've been through and to accept what we've been through because you're talking to people who get it and can't quite explain how healing that is and how how much you can offload to somebody who understands it's almost like you all speak the same language yeah but the we speak properly the first time we spoke on the phone we were talking for two hours because we were bonding over similar experiences and similar feelings and we, we were almost validating everything we'd been through in each other because it was the first time I don't know about you but it was certainly for me one of the first times I'd spoken to somebody who understood it like I did and that's really quite that was really healing um and, and kind of those places so I think we'll try and find out some information about opening hours and stuff certainly for Nakoa and for kind of other places that you can people can reach out to over the holidays but exactly that drop someone a message on Instagram or you know because like you've just said there's a whole community of people who would who will take the time whether it's Christmas day or boxing night or any of those things there are loads of people who are so passionate about this they will take that five minutes yeah and they may not be able to help you know the here and now but just someone saying I'm really sorry to hear that that's really difficult is is what you need you know again just to kind of caveat from a safeguarding thing if you feel you or somebody else is in danger over that period obviously take appropriate action yes um I always I always recommend people if if you think a loved one is dependent on alcohol or you, you yourself you think you're dependent on alcohol then first instance is to speak to your GP because alcohol dependency and alcohol withdrawal can be deadly Um, so it's really vitally important that you never tell an alcoholic to just stop drinking or take it away from them and that you seek clinical help and I think especially at this time of the year alcohol is everywhere you go it's in your face it's glamorized it's socially accepted God, you walk into a supermarket and it's just in front of you. I walked into Sainsbury's the other day and they had Baileys, stacks and boxes of Baileys as you walked through the door on offer. You don't get that with cigarettes. Do you know? It's that kind. It's that level of marketing that is put into it. So there's this glamorization. It's socially accepted. And where am I going with this? People don't understand the dangers of it. That's what I'm trying to say. Is that because it's so glamorized and so socially accepted and so heavily promoted people don't think that it's that bad 
because cigarettes are covered with a screen. I mean, my my logic used to be before my dad died, well, alcohol can't be as bad as smoking, otherwise they'd cover that up as well. But that's mm. actually not the case. If you look at a Lancet report, then alcohol is actually listed as one of the most dangerous drugs in the UK. It comes above crack and heroin. In fact, it is the most dangerous drug that's been listed. And um, tobacco becomes it's like number five or number six, I think. So I think for a lot of people, they underestimate the dangers of it and how deadly it can be because it's so heavily marketed. Yeah. And I guess if you are worried about that, educate yourself like knowledge is power so if you are spending Christmas with a loved one who you think or you know has a problem kind of do your research around that if that's what makes you feel better I've always had like my dad's GP number on my phone for example and all of those things because that made me feel better that I would it's definitely you know it's a control thing for sure but if it went wrong I would be able to provide that information I know what I'm doing because that made me feel safer so you know worked for you yeah yeah totally so find out who you could speak to find out the opening hours of you know the doctor whatever you whatever you whatever information helps you to manage that situation I agree well, I mean, we're just absolutely full of festive cheer, aren't we? I was going to say, shall we? Um... <laughs> wow. Merry <laughs> Christmas, everyone. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with a pun. I'm just in a very dark place. It's Black Friday. I work in a shop. It's been a very long day. And it's coming up to Christmas. I tried shopping earlier on and websites kept crashing. <laughs> it's like the Taylor Swift tickets all over again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We could just literally, we don't even have to say anything. We could just literally wait for it to fade out with us just laughing and talking. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Sarah and Amy, the children of Alcoholics Podcast. If any of the things we've been talking about resonates with you and you want further help, please contact NACOA at www.nacoa.org.uk. There you will find a wealth of information, support and advice. And remember, you are not alone.